1: The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening.
0: The coronavirus pandemic and the impact of efforts to control this virus have continued to devastate communities in North Carolina and across the United States. During this crisis, the United States government has been very ineffective in addressing this danger as has been several state governments. Responses to the present state of the crisis have included protests for the reopening of the economy by some and efforts to maximize the ability of people to participate in this new environment in a responsible and safe manner by others. The devastating impact from this crisis has significantly challenged many governmental functions and has curtailed the exercise of some of our constitutional rights that is to be expected when the nation and states are confronted with emergency situations of this type. The crisis which we are experiencing is not projected to conclude in the near future and will continue to challenge our safety and our constitutional rights. Nevertheless, We must all remain vigilant and minimize to the extent possible the harm that the people experience. One vital area of concern involves the right to vote. And the immediate concern focuses on the ability of citizens to vote in the upcoming general election, which will be conducted in November. Based on this concern, Democracy North Carolina the North Carolina League of Women Voters and several individual plaintiffs have filed a lawsuit in state court to compel the North Carolina Board of Elections to adopt a series of actions which would better encourage and protect the rights and opportunities for citizens to register and vote. So tonight we're gonna discuss this newly filed litigation. Joining us for this discussion is attorney tomas lopez the executive director of democracy north carolina tomas thank you for joining us this evening thank you for having me all right well let's let's start us off because this is not the first time that you've been a guest on the uh, legal legal review but for for our audience could you just uh, remind them of the uh, work of democracy north carolina and what is uh, the uh, general focus of, uh, of that organization.
2: Sure. I, and I'm, I'm glad to. Democracy North Carolina is a nonpartisan organization that works statewide in our state to build a political process that works for everyone. And what that means in practice is that we're interested in a few things. You know, one is making sure that the structures of our democracy work. So that means that we've got a right to vote, you know, that we've got fair representation uh that the barriers to taking part in a political process uh you know are things that can be surmounted that we're bringing those down and then at the same time right they are actually actively encouraging participation in that process so you know we're involved in outreach voter mobilization getting people involved not just as voters but also as people who are engaged and active citizens in their day-to-day lives. And we think that if we're doing those things at the same time, right, fighting for the right to vote, fighting against gerrymandering, um, working to really make people see the connections between those issues and other things that they may care about in their own communities, in the long-term, those two things serve each other and they're gonna lead to better outcomes for everybody.
0: Well, the the, the gist of what, what, what you've described involved more than the actual vote. On election days, uh, whether that is the general election or the uh, or, or the primary, why is it that uh, why is it important that uh, citizens be engaged in this process on days other than uh, when they actually go to vote?
2: Well, that's you know I'm glad you raised that right because I know we're going to be t- spending a lot of time in this conversation talking about the nuts and bolts of the election itself and. And it's certainly something that we have, you know, deep engagement in. And at the same time, we're at a moment, big election year, all these races. Uh, there's a lot of attention on elections and the term on the act of voting and what it means to be an engaged you know, member of the community. And a lot of people, and I think some of the messages that, that you know, we send out, you know, the collective we are that, uh, what it means to be an engaged member of the community means to be a voter, and while that's certainly necessary, we would argue that there's even more than being a voter that you can do to be making a difference. And so I look, I think about you know these legislative sess, this legislative session that's happening right now, where we're looking at uh, the ways in which our election rules are going to be shaped. The election, the legislative session we'll have next year, which will determine the lines that are drawn for the next decade for our state legislature and for our members of Congress. Uh, There are opportunities for people to actually get involved in politics, you know, I might say politics with a lowercase p, um, to try to influence outcomes, uh, even outside the ballot box. And that's so important in part, because in some ways you have even more power, you have a certain amount of power that you don't have when you vote, because there are far fewer people engaging in that way. And so your voice might even be a little bit louder than it might otherwise be.
0: Well, you know, we have a lot of uh, low income uh, communities in the state where people are working two and three jobs just to uh, survive in the uh, environment that uh, that we're in. Uh, Why can't they just, I guess, satisfy themselves by leaving it to those people who are well-to-do and who have the time to participate uh, in uh, those activities to run the uh, government and hope that uh, it works out in their uh, best interest. Well, you know, on a certain level,
2: right, we've got to account for the reality that there are a lot of people who aren't going to necessarily have a lot of time to engage in the process. I mean, that's that's a real thing. But in that same instance, you know, there is this other... uh, there's this other reality that I think you know, gets expressed There's a, you know, a, a turn of phrase I've heard a number of times, not just here, but in other, other places. And that is that if you are not on the table, you're on the menu. And so even to the extent that um, if you as an individual may not have time, you know, when communities are able to come together and, and act in some way to make sure their interests are represented, whether by a designated community member, a very effective representative, an organization working on their behalf, whatever the case may be, that voice becomes very important and there are times where then an individual may be called upon to do something it may be as simple as calling a lawmaker sending a letter to their newspaper, um, you know some individual action. But I do think um, you know we can have it's probably a, a separate and longer conversation about whether that is fair. But I think the reality is that I think unless our communities speak up in some way, they won't be heard.
0: Well, we just completed a uh, a series of primary elections in in March, just before the uh, coronavirus uh, uh, shutdown orders uh, went into place. And uh, my understanding is that uh, you had one of the largest turnouts uh, for uh, primary elections uh, that this state has experienced in a long time uh, how has the coronavirus itself and what the uh, government is doing to uh, control that uh, impacted uh, the uh, the voting arena yeah, that's a
2: you know that's a great question it's you know I think it's the one that's kind of led us to be talking here today and when I think about this you know i, I step back and even prior to the novel coronavirus, we thought about 2020 as a high volume, high turnout election year, really high interest um, across regions, across the political spectrum. Um, You know, we, we came into the year anticipating high rates of voter registration, high rates of voter turnout, and a set of challenges that also sort of may, you know, arise from that. And a set of challenges that may arise and that we, you know, have been concerned in some ways continue to be concerned that arise from the contentiousness of the elections that are being contested this year. Um, You know, voter intimidation, for example, being, you know, being a concern that we saw play out in the primary and one that, you know, may not go away in the fall. Um, The current public health crisis has imposed a whole new set of pressures on both uh, voting access and on the overall administration of our elections. Uh, And they're really kind of, you can go into a lot of details about this, but but one way to think about this are three broad categories. One is a resource crunch. Um, You know, because of the economic consequences of the public health crisis, uh, there are, there are fewer resources to pay for our elections, uh, and that is especially true at the county level, uh, where a decent amount of the money for elections in North Carolina comes from. Uh, and so, especially in rural counties uh, that don't have the same kind of revenue base as a large urban county—Wake, Durham, Mecklenburg, Guilford—you um, know, you face the possibility of funding shortfalls. Those funding shortfalls could lead to Fewer poll workers, fewer polling places, fewer supplies. There's kind of this downstream effect that you get from the resource crunch. The second category of impact comes from an increased interest in absentee by mail voting. So you've seen a lot of conversation about this in the last couple of months. In North Carolina, any person, any eligible voter is also eligible to cast an absentee by mail ballot but you have to jump through a lot of hoops in order to do so. And so the two concerns that we have regarding absentee mail balloting. One concerns the actual access to that process because of all the hoops you have to jump through to get and cast the ballot even if everybody is technically eligible. And then the second is from the logistics that come from our election officials having to deal with a projected massive increase in absentee by mail voting. And so Getting all that paper, getting all those envelopes, moving all these ballots back and forth—you uh, know—that is, you know, quite simply, a lot of work uh, on top of the work that's already going into the election. And then the third is making sure that we protect in-person voting because there is a there are pressures on in-person voting imposed by the crisis. Uh, you know, the first is, uh, you know, how do you administer a polling place if people have to be socially distant, right? but that could mean longer lines, that could mean longer ways. How do you you allow people to gather vote in person if we're supposed to be avoiding large gatherings? Right, so that's one challenge, right? A second challenge and one that we really saw illustrated uh, this past April in Wisconsin during that state's primary was um, the real threat that the current public health crisis causes Um, of a poll worker shortage. So the average poll worker in North Carolina is about 70 years old, right in uh, the age category that is of highest risk of serious illness from COVID. And uh, what we saw in Wisconsin was large shortfalls in people who were expected to be poll workers deciding not to be poll workers, not being able to serve as poll workers. And so in Milwaukee, you went from having, we're supposed to have 180 polling sites on primary day there. And then they ended up having five. Uh, You had long lines, long lines mean long waits. You also had clusters of people coming together. And so without addressing these issues, you actually end up in this really bad, negatively reinforcing cycle. You have fewer resources, so you're able to have less money for polling places and for, um, and for poll workers. Then you, turns out you have those fewer places and fewer poll workers, but because of the crisis, you have issues recruiting poll workers. And so then you end up having to close polling places because you don't have enough poll workers. And so you have even fewer polling places This creates an increase, these leads to longer lines, higher health risk for those in-person polling places and also increases pressure on absentee ballots, but the absentee ballots are harder to, are difficult to get and cast because as the law currently is, you need two witnesses or a notary to uh, submit your ballot. And even to get your ballot in the first place, you need to submit a piece of paper, either in person or by postal mail. And so the you absent any change in the way elections are run, you know we face the possibility of a scenario in the fall where we could have late surges in absentee ballot requests that end up overburdening election officials. Uh, relatively late consolidation of polling places, which you know not only. Um, you know we're always concerned about that because the impact we know that has on voting access the farther away you put someone from a polling place the less likely they are to vote and then there's the question of what polling places get eliminated and for who are the voters who in the polling places get eliminated and then you add it then you're concentrating in person voting even further at a moment where we're trying to avoid concentrations of people Um, the system we have right now is not built to have an election under the current circumstances and so You know, when we talk about the changes that we need to see, you know, it's about reacting to the reality that we're seeing on the ground.
1: A lot to unpack there. Uh, So I I wanted to, um, first, you had mentioned these three areas of concern. And so the the first one that you noted was a resource crunch. Um, Can you talk about, where the money will come from. So, so we know we have to provide for uh, the ability of people to exercise their constitutional right to, to vote. And uh, if there will be this anticipated um, economic or resource shortfalls, uh, the, the money has to come from somewhere So where does that money come from? What's the plan that needs to be put in place now, knowing that these are things that we're going to have to um, address? Uh, We've gotta take a quick break, but when we come back, I'd like for you to kind of expand on how we deal with the money issue. Um, And then of course, we'll have the opportunity to talk about all of the other points that you brought up. They're just so important. Uh, We can see it coming and we need to go ahead and make sure that we start acting now Uh, because this, as you noted, is an incredibly important election. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking with attorney Tomas Lopez, who is the executive director of Democracy North Carolina. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us.
3: I'm Nastasia Harris, a third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Virtual Justice Spotlight. We have the freedom to engage in issues we care about, to build power in our communities, and create real change. Through engagement, we choose our leaders and remove those leaders who don't represent our values. Our right to vote gives us that power. The 15th Amendment of the United States Constitution, as well as the Voting Rights Act of 1965, prohibits discrimination in voting based on an individual's race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Though there are federal voting laws and regulations in place, voting policies are primarily made and enforced at the state level. The current North Carolina political system has remained unfair to black and brown voters because it does not allow them to have a voice in their state government. Furthermore, the public health crisis we face today has endangered our democracy by threatening massive disruptions in election administration and facilitation, by limiting new voter registrations and safe environments for in-person voting. Despite these many challenges, all states must abide by the 15th Amendment and the Voting Rights Act. To register to vote in North Carolina, a prospective voter must be a citizen of the United States, at least 18 years of age must have lived in the county of his or her registration for at least 30 days prior to the date of the election and must not be serving a sentence for a felony conviction. Your vote is your voice. Let it be heard. More information is at democracync.org. Virtual Justice at the NCCU School of Law is the intersection of technology and the legal clinical program. I'm Nastasia Harris. Thanks for listening.
1: And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson, and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with Tomas Lopez, who is the executive director of Democracy North Carolina. And right before the break, um, Tomas was talking about all of the different kind of points in our election, upcoming election that has given rise to a tremendous amount of concern um, and Tomas you were talking about the resource crunch that that we can anticipate can you talk a little bit more about what the solutions are that will allow uh, counties to be able to pay for the needed election um, you know requirements
2: you know one important thing to know is that and and I I, I share this point a lot when I talk about how our election system works in general. We often talk about our election as one big thing, Uh, but in, in reality, right, when we have an election, especially a big national election like the one we're having this year, we're actually having many different elections in many different places. And in North Carolina, much of the administration of elections happens in each of our 100 counties that are staging the elections, holding the polling, you know, holding the going through the logistics of picking out polling places, hiring poll workers, making sure that supplies get to the right places. And it happens that that counties do end up footing a lot of the bill. That doesn't mean that there isn't money that comes from other sources. And when it comes to this year in particular and the pressures that we face, because counties are going to have less revenue, what we are really hoping for is that uh, our General Assembly will step up in order to obtain money that's actually already been a set aside by the federal government for our elections here in North Carolina. And so, uh, what's important to know is that there are, there are, uh, there is about $22.5 million in, in federal money that's been set aside from North Carolina based on two bills. One was a bill that passed late last year out of Congress, and another is the CARES Act, which was the, uh, federal stimulus package passed in April. Um, You know, that money is waiting for the state and it can be used to pay for things like personal protective equipment for poll workers, you know, printing costs that come from, you know, all the extra absentee ballots that election officials are anticipated are gonna be needed. Um, But we don't get that money unless the state puts up 20% of the total. So it's a matching grant. So in order to get that, 22 and a half million. The state has to put up about four and a half million. And even though, um, and even though you have a, um, uh, even though you've got a, um, we had a $1.6 trillion, uh, COVID stimulus bill pass in late April. Uh, they did not, there general assembly did not set aside four and a half million dollars for elections. Um, And, you know, that was really, I found that really concerning. I think many folks who were in this space found that concerning. Um, But the fact is this can still get done, Uh, but it needs to get done sooner rather than later. Uh, And so at the time of recording, there has been a bill introduced that, among other things, um, you know, does include this money. And, you know, that money is very needed. And I know we'll, we'll end up talking about that a bit later, but that is, you know, the first building block is that money.
0: Well, you had uh, also talked about the uh, increased expectation of uh, absentee uh, ballots and uh, people using uh, those uh, ballots instead of doing in-person voting. Let me just ask you you in, in terms of like the optimism that's associated with the crisis that we're in, can we reasonably anticipate a relaxing of uh, restrictions by November uh, such that in-person voting will not be the kind of uh, uh, dangerous uh, proposition that some people expect? Well, you
2: know, I think it's hard to say, right? I think if you talk to the public health experts, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, is being stressed is that, um, you know, we are not gonna be in this stay at home stance that we're in right now that we've been in lately that we're indefinitely, right? The state is starting to move, uh, you know, I think, cautiously out of um, you know, the, the stay at home, everyone stay at home position that we were in for March, April, much of May. Uh, but the question is what we can't predict, uh, what, but some models do show, right? Is the possibility of a second wave of viral spread Sometime in the fall, could be before the election, could be after the election. Uh, You know, we're dealing with a virus that, um, you know, the experts have only known about, right, for about six months. Uh, So there's a lot that just, you know, of the science that we just don't know about, you know, how this, you know, how this is gonna unfold. Um, And so, so much of what we're trying to plan for are different scenarios right? I think one thing we know, right, aside from whether we'll be in the kind of stay-home situation that we are now when in-person voting starts in mid-October, is that you're going to have a pretty notable swath of the population that is probably going to be pretty reticent about going and voting in person. Um, You know, the State Board of Elections estimates that uh, we could have as many as 30 to 40% of our ballots this year cast via absentee by mail. Um, that would be a, a ten tenfold increase, right? In 2016, about 4% of ballots were cast absentee by mail. And so you take that and then you make it, um, you know, you, you take that and make it, 30 40 percent you're looking at hundreds of thousands or even more absentee by mail ballots and you know in order to be you know we election officials have to be ready for that and the reality of elections is that they take time to plan and so you know because we don't know what the situation is going to be when people go out to vote in october and november uh we can't wait until we can't wait until october november to make the rules that are responsive to that moment we have got to make decisions now to be ready for the different scenarios that that sort of come out and so you know one of the concerns i have in terms of absentee ballots or one again this logistics piece of it right making sure that counties have what they need in terms of you know being able to get a hold of the supply chain to get the envelopes, the ink, you know, all the stuff that they need to actually uh, cast, you know, actually sort of send out ballot request forms, get ballots out, get ballots back. Um, But then there's the access point. Right now in North Carolina, again, we are what's called a no excuse absentee state. So there are some places where in order to cast an absentee ballot uh, or a mail ballot here, it's the same thing. You need to, you need to give a particular reason. You need to say, well, I, um, you know, I'm under the weather or I am you're going to be traveling outside of the, you know, city or county where I normally vote. Um, so I, I'm, you know, I need, I'm requesting this ballot. North Carolina, they'll, you don't need a reason, but you do need to submit a particular form. And then once you submit that form, you get sent the ballot. Once you get the ballot, you then have to fill out, uh, you, you've got to get it witnessed either by two individual witnesses or one notary public. And the concern that I would have, that I think, again, many of us who advocate around, uh, you know, free, fair, accessible elections have, is that you've got lots of people who may not have access to two witnesses right now. People who live in one person households or two person households. And we're supposed to be social distancing right now. And we may well be social distancing in the fall, whether it's a continuation of what we're doing now or a resumption of something because of a, a subsequent wave of viral spread. And what we, one scenario I really want to avoid is one in which uh, lots of people request absentee ballots, get absentee ballots, submit absentee ballots, but then when it comes time to count those ballots, they weren't able to get a second witness and those ballots get thrown out. And if you look at, if you have a big number of ballots that are thrown out where somebody even got a witness, somebody even got a witness and the ballot didn't count. And that number ends up and we, and we have a, you know, we have in North Carolina a history here of close contests at the local level and at the state level, right? The governor's race was set by 10,000 votes in 2016. And what you are, you know, you're really, you're looking at a scenario where you get a high proportion, right? Cause even in the, our primary, you had as many as four or 5% of the total absentee ballots, you know, did not have sufficient witnesses, right? You extrapolate that number to, uh, 30 or 40% of the total ballots that you start getting into it. You start flirting with the possibility of numbers that get into the margin of some of these contests. And that is something we really want to avoid when we talk about making sure that we have an election, everyone is confident in and that people feel like is legitimate and that legitimacy concern exists right among every, you know, that kind of concern where you have, that kind of uncertainty over these, these you know, people who even went and got a witness and their ballot doesn't count. That is, um, you know, I, I just think that ends up being really, um, that ends up being quite difficult. So I, I want to avoid that.
1: So Tomas, Dem- for, for folks who are, are listening and they are thinking, okay, well, maybe I should go ahead and plan on doing an absentee ballot. And there's a lot, you know, there are hoops that I have to jump through. What's the process? What should folks start thinking about now if they already anticipate that uh, casting their boat, vote by mail is the best thing for them? Like, when does it become available? Uh, how, you know, long do you have to, to mail the ballot? What should they be thinking about now
2: so one, one important thing to know is um there's a decent chance that the rules we have right now may be different a few weeks from now or by the time you're really thinking about voting right because this stuff is being uh you know worked out in the general assembly it's also being litigated you know so there there is some uncertainty uh, what we do know is uh you know as things currently stand and i think where it will stand afterward right is You have to submit your first step is submitting an absentee ballot request form so you have to submit this form provide some information about yourself uh, and get that to your county board of elections right now the only way in which you can do that is by uh, printing out the form and mailing it to your county board of elections or by going to your county board of elections and submitting it in person Uh, our hope is that um We will come out of all these processes with an option for people to email that form uh, and also use an online portal to get that form um, so that it's not just, you know, snail mail or or going somewhere that you don't necessarily want to go, you know, especially in the current situation. Um, Then what will happen is uh, absentee ballots will start going out to voters in September. Um, so, if you request a ballot over the summer, you you should end up getting that ballot actually relatively early on. But you can request ballots, you know, through much of the fall and still get one. Uh, you'll get one, and there will be a set of instructions that you'll have to follow in order, you know, sign in this particular place. Then there's an envelope you have to sign, and you know, under the current law, you need two witnesses, and the witnesses need to sign in a particular place. And so, you really have to make sure that you're following these steps correctly to make sure that your ballot ends up counting. Um, You still have the option if you request an absentee ballot to um, uh, go vote in person Um, you know but again you should talk to your uh, county board of elections to make sure you're clear on the procedures of what to do with your absentee ballot if you go and do that you know kind of uh, you know an ideal is to you know, a good rule of thumb is to kind of, if you have it, take it with you so that they can take it from you. And this way they kind of mark it and they say, okay, this is, you know, this person decided to vote, you know, this person decided to vote in person instead of casting the absentee ballot.
1: And what about those folks? What about those folks who want to register and also do absentee? So we know with the early voting you can you know cast your ballot and you can also register to vote how does that work with the absentee ballots you have to register first and then request it can yeah, you do I think, that one stop
2: you know my my um you know my understanding is actually you know a my understanding is that the request form can act as a registration form to provide sort of all the necessary information but that's something to check with again, your County Board of Elections about to be sure about sort of what they're doing in practice. You know, I think one good rule of thumb right now is um, there are lots of folks who have been removed from the voter rolls in part because of, the you know, sort of list maintenance practices. uh, And you may think you're registered to vote, but you might not be. And so one of the things that we're urging people to do is to make sure you're registered And if you're not registered, go ahead and register again. And if you have a driver's license or other DMV ID, you can actually now register to vote online. So we now have an online voter registration option in this state for people with DMV IDs. You can go on the DMV website. You can also go to the State Board of Elections website. It'll take you to that DMV website. You can register to vote, update your voter registration. And that ends up being a really useful thing as well, especially because You know, so much of what happens again in a big election year like this is usually see at festivals outside the supermarket, wherever you'll see people, you know, tabling with voter registration forms or knocking on doors, making sure people are registered to vote. That's not happening now, and so in the absence of that, voter registration has really dropped off. Uh, But this online option for folks who for those who can use it is a really useful thing.
0: Uh, We um we are aware that recently that uh, Democracy North Carolina, the uh, League of uh, Women Voters uh, and uh, other individual plaintiffs filed a lawsuit uh, in an effort to address uh, proactively some of the uh, uh, problems and concerns uh, that you have about, about the uh, voting process in, uh, in November. And I know we're close to our break time uh, right now, but can you just kind of briefly uh, uh, talk about why uh, you uh, uh, filed this uh, this action? And then after we take our break, we're going to come back and talk about the uh, specifics of the uh, litigation that you filed.
2: Sure. So, you know, I think as you said, you know, our organization plus the legal Women voters and a number of individual plaintiffs have filed suit. Uh, against a number of state agencies concerning uh, the election laws that we have on the books right now and how we think they're a poor fit for the reality that we've got on the ground. Uh, we're represented in that litigation by uh, a number of uh, litigating entities, including the Southern Coalition for Social Justice, the Fair Election Center out of D.C., and uh, the law firm Wilmer Hale. And we, um, we've brought this suit, I mean, in, in large part because we're running out of time. Uh, our State Board of Elections has said, they, has said to our General Assembly, look, we really need changes to our election rules to make this year's election work, and we'd really like these rule changes by mid-June. Right? Other county election officials said, we really need to know something by July. Um, the fact is, um, you know, we've we run out of time to wait on the General Assembly to come up with an answer. If they can still come up with an answer, great. But uh, you know, we were in a position where he felt like we just had we just didn't know I and mean, we still continue to not know, right? Until something is there and you know, and is and becomes law. Um, you know, we thought it was very important to make sure that we were getting uh, the full set of things or making a go at the full set of things we think we needed.
0: All right, this is the uh, legal legal review and we're talking with Tomas Lopez, who's the executive director of Democracy North Carolina. And we're talking about the uh, coronavirus and the uh, impact on uh, voting and efforts by uh, Democracy North Carolina and others to address uh, concerns leading up to the uh, November uh, general election. We're gonna take our break uh, right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we continue uh, this, uh, this this discussion. This so we'll be right back. Stay with us.
4: Since 2010, the North Carolina Central University School of Law has been at the forefront of virtual legal education with the launch of its Virtual Justice Project. The Virtual Justice Project is an innovation in legal education and technology. NCCU School of Law pioneered this approach to address the underrepresentation of African American lawyers and a lack of access to justice for low-income and marginalized communities. Virtual pre law courses prepare students, wherever they are, for the rigor of law school. The Know Your Rights series offers legal information sessions that empower participants to understand the law and to promote self advocacy. Both the pre law courses and the legal information sessions are made possible through telepresence and high definition video conferencing. Course listings and contact information, along with more detail about the Virtual Justice Project, are on the NCCU Law website at law.nccu.edu.
0: Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so much very much for staying with us as we uh, talked with uh, Tomas uh, Lopez, uh, Executive Director of the uh, of Democracy North Carolina, about uh, recent litigation filed by that organization and others uh, to prepare uh, voting for the upcoming general elections here in North Carolina. This is going to be a huge uh, election. Every presidential uh, election uh, is uh, is huge in Ghana's uh, significant attention uh, and participation uh, from people. Uh, we have the uh, coronavirus crisis that serves as an overlay uh, for uh, this uh, election, which has not been present in past uh, elections. So, Thomas, could Thomas, could you you, you talk about the uh, 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 focus of this? Uh, litigation and what it is intended to do
2: sure you know uh, we've been talking over the course of this conversation about uh, the ways in which the current crisis has pressured our election system you know, we talked about resources we talked about the impact of absentee voting and we talked about uh, the some of the impacts on in person voting as well um, but one of the things that you know there are a few other things we haven't necessarily gotten into that are really important uh, and we also haven't gotten into the way in which all of those things interact together to actually impact individuals' access. And that includes access for individuals with disabilities, uh, older North Carolinians. Um, you know, the, the, what all of the pressures add up to are that we have a set of election rules that, as the lawsuit argues, that um, in the current context actually mean that people aren't able to exercise their right to vote. And that because of that, you know, we think that the law compels that they have to be different. And so, you know, what we're looking for are, one, changes to our absentee ballot rules. So lowering that witness requirement, opening up the um, request process in a way so that it's more accessible to uh, more accessible to people other than just doing it in person or by postal mail. Um, I would say, um, We've got one thing in the lawsuit, right, that you haven't heard as much about is we're asking the state, we're asking the court to um, compel the state to establish a cure process for people whose absentee ballots have some kind of issue. So you go through all the effort to file an absentee ballot, uh, you request it, you get it, you fill it out, you send it back, and then it turns out your witness didn't sign in the right place. Or you signed on the witness line and the witness side on your, signed on your line. And that could be grounds for your signature not, there could be grounds for your ballot not counting. Um, What you end up with um, is a situation where um, there are some places where voters may be able to correct a problem like that on their ballot. There are other places where there may not be. And even in the places where there are, there may be different standards by which and different processes by which people do that. Um, I get really concerned when I think about you know what does the county over here do that the county over here doesn't and the county in the other part of the state's not doing any of it and this one's doing everything and so voters are actually not getting um, you know sort of a, a consistent process that they feel like that they can um, you know they sort of know what what they can do we wanna, and want and want to again minimize the potential um, you know, of absentee ballots getting tossed out. We've seen in other elections in other states that, again, especially in close races, absentee ballots become highly contested. They even become the subjects of litigation. You know, People looking at signatures of magnifying glasses, all, the, all this kind of stuff. Um, cure process on the front end can help make sure that people's ballots count and could hopefully help stave off the kinds of disputes then again, sort of end up being very costly, very ac- acrimonious, anything in the current context, right? Would lead, you know, could lead people to question the election itself. And so I think, again, we wanna be avoiding that. Um, another category that of policy that we're looking at, you know, we're looking for the court to act on the lawsuit is voter registration. You know, I, I mentioned that, um, voter registration has been way down since we all started staying at home. You know, normally you would have voter registration tables everywhere, people knocking on doors. Um, we haven't had that. And so what we're seeking in the lawsuit is one, an expansion of the online voter registration system beyond just the DMV option that exists now. Uh, but also to push back that deadline uh, that currently exists 25 days before election day for any, um, uh, voter registrations that come in, uh, by the standard process, which includes voter registration drives, create a broader window, uh, for people to, especially in the event that we have, um, you know, we do have the ability to conduct these events in the fall that were, that people are able to conduct them in a way that we're able to reach as many people as possible. So, voter registration is an important piece of the formula here. Another piece of it is protecting in-person voting and, What we mean by that is that we are not looking for an all-male election, right? That is a point that we have heard a lot over the past couple of months. Uh, You know, I, I think a concern among folks that, you know, could we be facing an election that is cast entirely by mail? You know, I think as far as I'm concerned, and I think that's true for many people who work on this issue in North Carolina, that'd be an absolute last ditch scenario. Um, People in North Carolina are used to voting in person. Voting in person is far and away the most popular way to cast a ballot in this state. We want to make sure that people are able to do so and are able to do so safely. One important hinge point for that is on early in-person voting. So that's the 17-day early voting period that precedes Election Day. right? So it'll happen from October 15th through the 31st this year. Um, In 2016, early in-person voting was the most popular form of casting a ballot in that year's general election in our state. 61% of North Carolina voters cast their ballots during the early voting period. And that's great because what you have during that period is the ability to register to vote and go vote at the same time, right? We call that one-stop voting. Early voting has also been a target of voting restrictions in recent years, most recently a 2018 law that constrained the ability of counties to deploy resources around early voting in certain ways. And by that, I mean that there was a law that basically said that if you're gonna have early voting at multiple locations, which is common in many counties, you have to make sure that during weekdays or within weekends that you're doing so for uniform hours. While that sounds like that might be a decent thing, what you end up with is a situation that because counties are paying for early voting, they end up having less money for polling locations, especially if they don't have a lot of resources to begin with. And so for example, if you wanna have voting available at the church, the school, and the community center, it might've previously been the case that you could make them available at one location in the morning and another in the afternoon and a third on the weekend. Now what the law says is, you're going to have that. They need to be the same hours Monday through Friday or the same hours on both Saturday and Sunday, whatever weekend day you're having that. And so that's really, it's a, it's a subtle thing, but the way it ends up operating is that it costs more to open up any single early voting location. And so a really good example of this, is what happened in Halifax County down East where, um, in Halifax you had a, um, you used to have as many as two or three early voting sites. In the 2018 general election, you only had one. Uh, And that was, uh, again, kind of connected to the resources or the lack thereof, right? They were unable to keep all those sites open for the same amount of time. And I realized, you know, I might have exposed myself not necessarily being sort of a native down east out of Halifax Councils all the way down east. But, you know, for somebody who lives in Durham, it's east enough. Uh, and sort of the core point being, right, that you've got, uh, you've got a situation where this is going to fall more on your Halifax counties, your counties that have lower revenue bases to begin with, than your Wakes, your Durham's, your Mecklenburg's. And because of the current crisis, there's even less money to go around. And so what we're asking the court to do is to lift those restrictions. To make sure that, especially at a time of social distancing, we end up with more places to go vote in person, not fewer.
1: Yeah, and that—that that was going to be my um, my question to you, or or maybe comment, which is, you know. Early voting is already popular, uh, but if you want to avoid, I mean, there are some people who like voting on, you know, election day. That's part of their, you know, their process. Uh, but there will be more people that will want to do early voting if they still want to vote in person. So we can imagine that the the number of um, people who will be exercising their right through early voting will increase. And to your point, if you have the early voting poll places being reduced at the same time that you've got more people who want to exercise their right in the early voting period, then you've got, you know, the crowds and the long lines and and that puts everyone's health at risk.
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we're, it's, it's about being able to take a, a situation where, um, you know, you could end up having to socially distance and being make sure we're really prepared for it.
0: You know, the the other issue uh, as well is that uh, the you talked about sixty one percent of the uh, voting population voting during the early voting period, uh, but of those voters, uh, the most vulnerable populations uh, were involved uh, in that. Those who have uh, typically, uh, underlying uh, medical issues, uh, older uh, persons uh, were the ones basically who were uh, making up or who made up that uh, 61%. And uh, they certainly need to be uh, protected. Uh, do you think that there's going to be or do you project uh, a sufficient educational effort uh, being uh, directed by the uh, Board of Elections that would help that population to, to uh, uh, transition over to uh, the uh, absentee uh, mail-in ballot. And the
2: reality of it is that they could, the uh, state board and our counties could use resources to really pull that off. Um, you know, there is, there is some voter education that they will be able to do and that we certainly hope that they will do um, you know, by law, right, they will produce this judicial voter guide that can, you know, go to every voter and have a lot of good and useful information. Um, but we also know that um, what we need is uh, voters to get touches and to get clear information. One of the things that you know we'll be doing at Democracy North Carolina is trying to create, you know, we'll be creating our own informational resources based on however this all shakes out. So that people understand what the rules are. I'm going to try to get that information into the hands of people who can use that information and from people who can get that information to other people who can need them. So that means both digital and through other forms of, of media as well for people who maybe, you know, are more digitally averse. Um, but I think, you know, really, I mean, we do need the the state to be playing a role in this as well.
0: One of the other issues had to do with uh, uh, voters' ID. Uh, and uh, that is a, an issue that is particularly uh, acute when you talk about uh, mail in uh, uh, voter uh, ballots. Uh, how, how do you anticipate, or what, what does the uh, litigation anticipate uh, to be done to address that issue?
2: So I think one of the things that we know that we've got with, uh, with voter ID in particular, um, you know, the ID situation is right now our, our standard voter ID requirement uh, is now held up in court, right? There's a federal case and there's a state case. Um, You know, the federal case is moving uh, more quickly right now. There are some, there's real action happening there and those are both blocked. And certainly the hope would be that we don't have voter ID in place this fall um, you know we think that we think that voter id is poorly advised to begin with we think that you know we've seen the discriminatory impacts that it has and we also think in north carolina there's a clear history of discriminatory intent behind voter id uh, at the same time even if you were to set aside those issues the idea of putting in putting in place a new requirement for this year's election at the point of the general election in the middle of this unprecedented public health crisis just seems from an administrative perspective to be a really bad idea. Uh, And so, you know, I think certainly, um, you know, we want to make sure that, um, you know, people are not having to present ID when they go to the polls this fall or when they're casting a ballot.
1: Uh, Thomas, so much of of what you've been talking about all goes back to you know resources, <laughs> resources, 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 and and uh, earlier in our discussion you were talking about how being engaged in our democratic process is more than just casting a ballot. It also includes being mindful of what's happening at the the legislature and that the general assembly. And you had mentioned that. Um, in order for the state to get those matching grants that the state would have to, the GA would have to uh, come up with about 4.5 million. Uh, as far as what individuals can do if, if they want to get involved in you know, the small kind of political efforts, what, can, what would you suggest if folks want to get involved, particularly as it relates to making sure that the resources are in place, so that all that needs to be done to make sure that we have, you know, accessible, full and fair elections.
2: I would encourage people to visit democracync.org. We've got a whole set of things that people can be doing to take part, to contact their lawmakers, to get involved in themselves and activities that we're going to be have going on, not just to lower the barriers to voting access this fall, but to make sure that whatever the barriers look like, that we're helping people surmount them. So the spot that we're in now is we are trying to think about this, not just in terms of, okay, we've got to sort of make sure that we've got the best rules that we can, but to use this as an opportunity to say to people, look, you care about voting access, you care about getting out the vote, get fired up now about fighting for the best rules we can, and then keep that fire going, because then we're going to need to help people connect and get connected to good information and for opportunities to cast a ballot. And so again, if you visit democracync.org, you'll get introduced to all kinds of ways in which you can comment directly to lawmakers, message lawmakers, uh, there'll be trainings. You know, we're, we're starting to have trainings on how to use the online voter registration system. Uh, you know, we're having some online voter registration parties, uh, you know, with, in different parts of the state. So we are, we are again, working on both Both fronts at the same time, both fighting to make the rules as better as the best that they can be, but also to make sure whatever the rules are, whatever they end up being after litigation, after lawmaking, whatever all that looks like, that people have the ability to cast their ballot and they use it.
1: All right. Well, we're out of time. We'd like to thank our guest, Attorney Tomas Lopez, who is the Executive Director of Democracy North Carolina. And, uh, Tomas, thank you for all of the hard work that you and your organization are doing. Uh, no one anticipated, you know, certainly a couple months ago, no one anticipated that we would be here and the work that you all have to do to make sure that we've got full, fair, and accessible elections has just um, compounded. Uh, We'd also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you miss any of our shows, you can now find us in podcast form on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, and
3: safe.